Yes, Honest Actors is back with brand new episodes every Friday. To help me continue releasing new episodes without a sponsor, or to say thanks for your favourite old ones, click the support link in the episode description. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It's a one-off, feeling generous, good deed for the day sort of thing. Think of it as bumping into me and buying me a drink. To find out more, click the support link. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, mine's a large red. I hate those guys. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, my name is Jonathan Harden and you're listening to episode 11 of season 3 of the Honest Actors podcast. Sponsored, as always by the glorious Today Ticks. If you want great offers on theatre tickets, access Today Seats on your mobile and exclusive front row lotteries, you need Today Ticks, the ticketing app that lets you see theatre differently. To get tickets with no queues and no fuss, download Today Ticks now from the App Store and Google Play. So this is it, the penultimate episode of this final series of the Honest Actors podcast. It's with Sean Biggerstaff. You can also listen to uh, the live episode that was recorded in association with Equity a few months ago if you scroll down the podcast feed and look for Equity Live podcast. That features Sean along with episode 7's Emily Barrington. You can listen to her full interview as well on the same podcast feed that you're listening to now. But for now, here it is, episode 11 with Mr. Sean Biggerstaff. Enjoy. We're here. The big fat right. red button has been oh, uh, has been activated. Listen, first of all, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, some would say you've already given your time to honest actors. You've already <laughs> done your done your stint. Done but after the chat, and I said this recently when I was talking to Emily, um, and I think I spoke to both of you in the day, if not shortly after, and said, "Listen, I, I have to get these two on because it's really interesting." There's so many things you said, and I wanted to. We didn't have, Lorna didn't have time and I really wanted to know why or that's really interesting. I haven't heard that before. And I guess it was just partly greed. Like I didn't want it just to be something that had happened and I hadn't been able to follow up on. But I guess my instincts I have to trust in terms of the people that listen that if I'm feeling like, oh, that's really interesting, then hopefully they will too. So that's kind of why. Um, the other thing to say is that with now like 40 of these or something done, um, you're the first person I think intentionally I haven't turned up with my four pages of questions for because it's still starting to feel, it used to feel like a crutch and now it's starting to feel like uh, some kind of horrible restriction. So what I did was I listened to that chat that you had with Larner and Emily and kind of was like, right, well, where, where are the points at which I think, oh, that's really interesting. So first of all, I guess, as I asked Emily, was that a different experience as an interview for you? 
did that feel any different from the kind of thing that you may do at a, at a comic con or for a or for oh. a junket or oh god yeah massively and and in a very um kind of um cathartic way because uh, well you know when you when you if you're doing an interview at well, if you don't a junket, you're kind of it's part of a professional duty, and you've got you know, you know either say something nice or not say anything at all. You know, and if you're at, you're at a convention, you want to you know you you yeah exactly. People are paying to be there, and they're paying to have a kind of um, positive uh, experience related to this thing that they love, and that's that's kind of your your job. Yeah. Um, whereas talking talking to a room full of starry-eyed young actors is, I feel it. Uh, absolute duty to be honest about um, my experiences. Because some people, I guess, and I think this is part of the problem in the industry in the past, probably less so now, some people faced with younger actors, certainly at an earlier stage in their career, if not younger, would feel like, I've got to cheer them up. I've got to get them excited. Mm. I can't let them, you know, lose hope or lose faith. But I, I, I feel like... The podcast certainly generally has surfed a very fine line, sometimes not so successfully, but hopefully most of the time successfully, between, on one hand, reality, and on the other hand, uh, a kind of uh, angry vitriol, you know, like yeah. that, that we have all of these things that for a long time we've just kept privately uh, and processed privately, but that there's been a kind of a, a bit of a move of late towards like saying, oh, do you know what, this... This is bullshit. I'm going to call this what it is. We should have more respect from casting directors or whatever, right? But it felt like in that room, actually, people really respond. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by the response, and kind of pleasantly surprised that you wanted to chat again because I, I was, I was quite concerned going to that, thinking that, you know, there's going to be all these hopeful young enthusiastic people and then they want to hear what it's like to be a professional actor and I have a lot of pretty negative things to say about what it's like to be a professional actor and although I feel compelled to be honest um, about that it's also like I was thinking nobody's going to want to hear yeah, much cool. of what I have to say about an actor but in actual fact um, people did people seem to be quite find it quite refreshing to um, yeah to hear someone just being that straightforward about it um, yeah so that's good, I guess. And if, if I encourage just one person to not do it, then I'll, uh, I'll have done my job. Uh, that's brilliant. <laughs> if, if just one person decides not to be an actor, yeah, and then it's all been worthwhile. does something with their life, then it's all been worthwhile. <laughs> if you find that in any way terrifying, stop listening now, I guess, is the, is the message. So um, to get it back to what, what I normally talk about with people, um, the kind of usual run of order is and it makes sense narratively how you got into acting um, at that round table which is still available online if people want to listen to it for free uh, you talked about kind of a first film and job and a first theatre job that were fairly substantial um, and being eight years old and getting into the industry but I wondered if you could say more about how that actually goes from being an eight-year-old who decides to be an actor to actually being an actor. Um, I mean, really just a series of dumb luck as a small child. Um, when, I was, when I was 10 years old, uh, the Tron Theatre were having open auditions um, for a production of Macbeth directed by Michael Boyd. Um, and I went along to that and, and got it and played the son of Macduff. Uh, not realising, of course, at the time, 
quite how significant that is to be in a production of Macbeth at the Tron. Yeah, absolutely. And not realising at the time, I guess because no one realised at the time quite how significant it was to be working on that production with yeah. Michael Boyd, because as far as, <laughs> as, as far as I understand, that's that's the show that got him noticed by the RSC and got him asked to come and work there. Um, and then the rest is history. And then I didn't, I didn't see Michael for 20 years and then uh, met him three years ago and he hired me for a play um, called Right Now, which was which I did with Maureen Beattie, our illustrious equity president, and uh, which was almost certainly the best thing I've ever been involved with. So my career today has been kind of bookended by these extraordinary Don't say that, because then that means that it's... Today, I said today. So, so... Yeah, so just went to youth theatre, auditioned for that, got it, went to... Scottish Youth Theatre, I'm sorry, stomach's rumbling, went to a, a bigger youth theatre and then Alan Rickman came along when he was casting a play called The Winter Guest, which I didn't get, it was too young for, some friends of mine did it, uh, and then he came back a year and a half later and had remembered me and my now close friend Douglas Murphy, who's now an architect and a writer. Because uh, he's sensible. Yes, because he's sensible. Because Douglas he has the smarts. And did something with his life. Yeah. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Douglas. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, got that. And then through Alan, as soon as I left school, which I did at 16 because I hated it, um, through Alan got a big agent in London and, and he put a good word in for me with the people at Harry Potter and it's just, and it's just a, a series of uh, being in the right place at the right time. It sounds like The main like one that. being being in the right place at the right time to meet Alan Rickman at the age of 11 and a half. It sounds like that and you sell it like that and you tell a convincing story about it being a series of dumb luck, but surely... Um, there's something else going on there as well. Surely there must have been an element that you were you had a, a natural capability for it because not every eight-year-old in that youth theatre, not every 10-year-old, not every 11-and-a-half-year-old, yeah, yeah, yeah. given those opportunities, yeah. might have ended up in the same path, on the same path. Don't get me wrong, that's not, it's not um, like false modesty or whatever. Like, I, don't, I don't think that... I, I am terrible. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that I'm without... Um, without gifts yeah. or anything. Um, and I think, uh, I, I mean, I can answer for what Michael saw that he wanted all that, all those years ago. Um, I think I have a certain kind of honesty and straightforwardness in my approach to performance, which, which very much appealed to Alan and was what he always kind of liked in me and always encouraged in me. <laughs> um, but at the same point, like, you know, they're sort of separate, you know, you can be as good as you like, and if you don't have those lucky bricks, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So there's and also, if you, and some people are terrible, have those lucky bricks, and yeah, and they're all over our screens. You know, what I mean, there is a parallel parallel universe where that eight year old with whatever gifts that eight year old had doesn't have those opportunities and ends up doing something completely different, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the question out of that is, had you not had all of those? Um, series of fortuitous events on which you were able to capitalise for whatever reason. Do you think at 15, 16, 17, at the age when people start to think about what they might do after school and beyond, do you think had you been one of the other kids back at the youth theatre watching somebody else, watching Douglas off doing Harry Potter, that you would have continued to act? No. It was very much contingent on... Yeah, I think... Getting into it was something that I did for something to do when I was a kid. I think by the time I was, I, I don't think I've got the temperament that if I got to 
kind of school leaving age and wasn't already doing it that I would have wanted to like take the leap and pursue that. Um, I don't think I would have enjoyed drama school. No. <laughs> and well, consequently, I mean, a lot of young people, because I've you know, been in a couple of big things, a lot of young people ask me for advice on how to get into acting, you know, in their, in their late teens, early 20s. My answer is, I just don't know. I literally don't, you know, I've not, yeah. I didn't do that. I've not had that experience. I don't have any advice to impart on, on how to just start from nowhere as a young adult and, and make it happen. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating being an actor who hasn't trained is that I know I certainly carry or have carried to a greater extent than I do now in the past anxieties or dare I say it um, a fear of inadequacies based on I didn't go through mm -hmm. the necessary checkpoints along the way that somehow I decided like you albeit a few years later than that that I'm going to be an, I'm going to be an actor I'm going to go and do it and that's what's going to happen and subsequently I find myself in rehearsal rooms or in auditions thinking, I don't deserve to be here. There's something like, you know, I haven't, these guys have spent time, they've worked, they've done whatever, and I haven't done that. And I think that's probably fairly common to most people, not just in this industry, but in life, that thing of mm -hmm. there is a proper path and then there's a kind of a, a shortcut that, you know, few of us know and have taken and, and that when you get to the to whatever point it is you get to, you feel like, I wish it gone the long way around. Do you ever feel like you, you, you wish it hadn't happened that way? Taking into account, of course, the fact you say you wouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. Like, do you yeah. ever wish it had yeah, been no. a more slow and steady, uh, slow burn moving forward through the ranks? And I think as Denise Goff put it years ago in one of the episodes, not missing steps. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever carry that with you? I, I think I've gone through phases and moments of feeling like that when I was younger. Um, particularly, I remember at one point I went like seven years without doing any theatre work and then went back into doing a real big, very theatrical show with a lot of people who do a lot of that work um, and was, yeah, beside myself with, with kind of nerves just going into a rehearsal and going into that environment and just felt like, you know, I haven't really done this since I was a child playing around um but not really I, mean, th I just think there are pros and cons i don't think there is there is an answer to whether you should train or not um some trained actors are incredible and yet they can have a they can have a uh, a toolbox and a sort of completeness to their skill set um which is very desirable um a lot of the time uh, which I, and which I certainly don't have, uh, but some people that have been through training, I think you can just sit there and see the wheels turning, and it's it's actually a quite a negative effect, you know. Um, uh, and there are not, you know, some people are not going to be able to kind of do much without training. But then, so I'm sort of rambling here. But I think the the older I get, I kind of know what my strengths are, and I know what I can bring to a project. And I think I'm quite good at being quite detached and disinterested. And if I, if I if I if I look at something, if I look at something and I think I'm not the guy for this, I'm not who you need to do this. What I have to give is not mm. what you need. I won't put myself forward for it. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm in a luxurious position that I can do that. You know, I'm not like yeah. I'm not kind of 
desperate for next week's rent um, all the time. But yeah, so no, I don't, I don't, apart from in some, you know, neurotic moments as a much younger actor, that's not, it's not something that bothers me at all. Um, so then I think you've probably referenced it. I, I suspect, I know what the answer to this is, but it may be wrong. Um, if you were to pick one job that you've done, which could stand for you, that if people who didn't know who you were were listening, going, who's Sean Bickerstaff? And you could somehow direct them to the credit on your CV, which you think, that's, that's who I am. As an actor, that's who I am. That's the kind of work I love doing and I want to do. Bearing in mind, of course, everybody's listening that's seen you in other things or been involved with you in other things or hired you for other jobs. <laughs> this is not in any way saying you didn't enjoy and love all those yeah, other yeah, jobs, right? Uh, no, some of them are terrible and I will name names. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the thing, the thing that I'm by far the most proud of is, is um, right now, a play that um, we did. Uh, it was written by Catherine Anne Toupin, the French... Uh, Canadian TV star um, and um, Michael Boyd directed it at the Euston Oven Bath and the Bush and um, uh, the Traverse in Edinburgh uh, that was three years ago now uh, and it was a completely messed up um, experience for the, the play itself was was very very difficult psychologically um, and also just something that was going on around it but that was the thing uh, uh, that um, I really felt like it, it required, it asked for everything that I've got and I gave everything that I got without hesitation and I think it really, really worked. Um, and it breaks my heart that it was only on in three theatres for a short run and now that's it, gone. And yeah. it's, you know, just the, that's the tragedy of theatres when it, when it really does work. You know, the joy of it is when it doesn't, day, it's just nobody the, knows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the film has the opposite problem. It's there, yeah, there exactly. Um, yeah, so it's really heartbreaking that that's kind of now just a, a, a fading memory in the minds of the relatively few people that got to see it. But um, in a in a in a fantasy land where you could go back and and watch things in the theatre, yeah, that would be the one for sure. Um, so to get to that, um, not necessarily on that occasion, but most occasions. Uh, there's the process of going through an audition or some kind of uh, selection process. Mm -hmm. um, I have heard actors talk of their love for auditions. And You've what? This is where I'm going with this. Do you enjoy that process? How do you find it if you don't enjoy it? Is it troublesome? Is it anxiety-ridden? Is it burdensome? Or is it just... A thing. It's all of those things. Um, and I hate it so much that I've, in 25 years, never got good at it because I just, every fibre in my being resents it so much. Um, some theatre auditions are quite good. So what is it that makes a good audition then? Um, well, in, if, you're, if you're working in theatre and it's people that are good, um, like when I auditioned for Michael Boyd or when I auditioned for um, Mike Bradwell to take just two, the first two examples that come to it um, it's very very relaxing it's almost like it's almost like the first day of table work in a rehearsal you just go in you have a chat about it you know you've read you've, they've sent you the whole script for a start you've read it it's usually like an interesting piece of writing which is often not the case in film yeah. and television mm -hmm. Um You'll have, you know, a film TV audition, you'll have one page of, of out-of-context, terrible dialogue. 
Yeah. Um, this isn't the script, by the way. This mm -hmm. is just this, and, and the caveat that this isn't actually the script. Oh yeah, this isn't actually it. This is just some random words that yeah. idiots put on a page yeah, yeah. that we want you to say so that we can see if you can speak. Yeah, basically. Even though you've been a yeah. professional actor for twenty years. Um, yeah, some theatre editions, you go in, you've enjoyed the play, you've got something to say about it, you talk to them about it, you read a bit, you chat about it some more, you read a bit again. That can be great, that can be a nice experience. Um, but of course, the vast majority of editions are uh, standing in front of a camcorder with a page of bad dialogue, with the other parts being read in by a casting director's assistant who can't act. So it's literally impossible to give a good performance because you're on, you know, you can't time something well of someone that can't read. Yeah, <laughs> and aren't leaving if it says the thing annoys me most is if they the lights are going to go off in here because we're not moving. Um, the thing annoys me most is that kind of uh, there's a silence in the stage direction, and it's significant because something changes within your character. And, and within their opinion or their their mind is, is made up about something and they come in hot like straight yeah, away yeah. and you go holy fuck give me a chance it says in the script silence yeah. something happens something happens silence and then you speak so please just fucking give me two seconds to get there like that's oh, the thing yeah, that terrifies the, me about the, it the the ubiquity of casting directing well not entirely but the, the proportion the vast vast proportion of casting directors who, despite that being what they do for a living, have no concept whatsoever of how to actually give actors what they need to show what they can do. Yeah. This is your entire job, mm -hmm. is to figure out who's right for this part. Mm -hmm. And you're throwing obstacles in the way of everything that they do with every single stage of your process. It feels like getting actors in. The one sort of I've enjoyed is, and I've done this on the other side as well, I've gone in to read four casting directors opposite people auditioning, quite often for lead roles and big things that I'd never be seen for. But um, the auditions as an actor that I've been through that I've enjoyed quite often have involved either a casting director who used to be an actor, and so they, they get it, mm. or actually casting directors who go to the trouble of hiring an actor to come in and read and an actor who understands that and doesn't make it their audition. Yeah. Like those for me have been the ones where I've thought, well, that was useful, but anything else is like... Yeah, great, but that's one in ten if you're lucky. Right? Yeah. And equally those ones where you're talking to four people and there's one person talking to you and you've got, um, not even speaking the tennis balls, you've got to imagine the tennis balls because what you don't want to do is deliver the whole thing to... And so actually what you're doing is not acting, you're trying to remember where everyone is in your imaginary it's supposed to, to be. Line up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they pick. They pick the scene for the audition, and it's a scene with eight characters and an action sequence in yeah. it. I, I love and the ones two lines. Yeah, where you're pinned against the wall, like, and you go, "I, I can't. How are we going to do the? Pit? Don't worry, just do it." <laughs> I remember doing a self tape where it ended with it was for a zombie movie and uh, obviously being me it was a character that died as my mum always points out and um, I had to do a scene which is quite a nice scene and it ended with me unexpectedly being killed unexpectedly so I don't know where so there's no build up to it they didn't need to see like I'm oh I'm terrified I didn't know what was going to happen and then I get killed so I thought well this scream at the end is totally you know, yeah. surplus to requirements so I did the scene and two days later, I got a reply. They really like you. They really like you. They need to see the screen. <laughs> I shit you not, right? And I said to my agent, if they can't trust me to screen, I don't know if I want the job. 
And he said, no, no, you want the job. I'm telling you you want the job. Can you do a scream on tape? And so then I was put through, as an actor in my 30s, right, was put through uh, the stupidity of being in a hotel room somewhere else on another job, holding my phone up because I had nothing to set it on, and screaming into camera, and then falling backwards onto the hotel bed, knocking over the line. <laughs> Didn't get the job. Turns out, apparently something about my scream put them off. <laughs> I could go on about that shit forever. Buy tickets to the best theatre in London the new way. With the Today Ticks app, getting great offers and access to exclusive tickets has never been easier. With Today Ticks Rush, you won't have to queue at the box office for hours to get day seats, and you can access big savings with their lotteries. Download Today Ticks, the theatre ticket app, from the App Store and Google Play, and see theatre differently. See, I can be serious when I wanna. I had a, I had a, I think it was maybe a year. Ago, uh, an audition for Ryan Singer. <laughs> well, we'll not go down that road, but um, <laughs> which was exactly uh, describe all, all the all the different people where you were. It was some really, really, really boring dialogue. Where if you were actually doing it in the film, the point is not to like do much with this scene. Mm. Like it's a very, very functional expositional yeah. bit. Like it's just it would just be said in a very straightforward way. So the worst thing to have for an audition because like. If you do it right, it looks like nothing. And you're not going to even look in anyone's yeah. eyes because yeah. there's nothing of any... And there's eight other characters. Each other line in the scene is coming in from a different character all around the room. And you go into a room and there are, because it's Brian Singer film, it's him and like four execs who, are, who all don't even acknowledge when you come into the room and are, have all got their own monitors and are uh, watching what the camera's yeah. seeing and talking about you as if you're not there. I, I mean... Uh. He's a little Scottish. <laughs> is he Scottish? Can you lose your accent? Is he Irish? What is that? He's a little Irish. Uh, so, so actually, that's an, an interesting kind of point of departure, which is, uh, I guess, not getting it. Have you ever felt like, and we talked about, you know, carrying the thing of, I haven't trained. I don't think that would ever come into it if you're auditioning for a film. Well, he hasn't trained as a theatre actor, and therefore he's out. Um, but I wonder about, say, being from Scotland. Have you ever found that to be something that you think that's because they can't imagine me being anything other than Scottish? Oh, no, far from it. Um, really? From the age of 19 to 27, I don't think I worked in my own accent once. Um, Was that a decision? Because I remember making a decision when I moved to London that I wasn't going to audition for Irish parts. No, um, well, not a decision. I mean, I did come, I was, I, I live in Glasgow, but I was, I've been professionally based in London. Like, I've always had agents in London um, from the age of 16, 17. Um, but for that, we had a big agent in London who was getting, able to get me seen for a lot of different things. And they knew that I was quite good with accents. Um, and so that. I got lots of additions for things that were different, and just the way that it worked out. It wasn't. A, it, it wasn't like I refused to go into. Um, I refused to do a Scottish accent, and in fact, in f for the last few years, I've ended up doing mostly my own accent for whatever reason. It's just that's yeah. been the pattern. I went from hardly doing it to mostly doing it. Which do you find? Um, which do you find more satisfying? Um, I. I prefer doing a different voice because I. I like to. Um, I just. Think, I think it's a good. Uh, 
it's a big help when trying to build a character to have to have something that's that big a kind of physical difference. Yeah. Um, step outside help, yourself. Yeah, it helps you step outside yourself if this person literally uses their, their throat and their mouth in a different way mm. from how you do. Um, it got to the point where the first, after when I got a job, um, in fact, yeah, I think it was my first theatre job um, after seven years and the first time that I'd worked in my own accent in seven or eight years, uh, I was terrified. It felt really weird playing a character but using my own voice. Yeah. And it took me a while I'm not to go over this that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just, like, well, just say it like I would say it. I don't know. And it suddenly it made me actually be kind of feel really wooden. Yeah. Um, for a second. Yeah, I get that sometimes. Uh, but I got having having then done quite a lot of work in a Scottish accent and become and got comfortable with it. I then got to the point where I was. I was sort of shamefully, secretly, actually quite happy if they just went through a Scottish accent because yeah. it was less work. You know? well, no, I think it's. I went through a period of wanting to do accents for exactly the same reason, and then for chance, started working again on my own accent. And actually, now if I go into a room, I had an audition a few weeks ago, which came close to didn't get. But in the room, I was like, I think it's better if this guy's Northern Irish. I can do the the mm. accent you specified, but I think it's instantly more interesting. <laughs> I've done that if well, he's not actually, from yeah. Surrey. Yeah. And had the, the discussion with a German director and he was like, I like it. I like the reasoning and did it and got close to it, didn't get it. May have not got it because of that decision. But like, I've now got to the point where I think, did I show you? Oh, fuck, not my own accent years ago and I've always regretted not doing it my own accent because I think it would have been infinitely more interesting. And ever since then, I'm like, if it's right for the character, whereas 10 years ago, I'd have fought to do a London accent because I'm, I'm really good at that. I can show off. Yeah. was part of it. That'll be yeah. good in my show. Yeah, 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 yeah. was part of the logic. And I, what have I not gotten on my show wheel? I remember doing a job once and doing it in a Geordie accent because it didn't have a Geordie accent on my show wheel. My wife was doing a play in Newcastle. I'd been hanging around a load of Geordie actors and thought, yeah, I got this down. And so I played a bus driver in London and decided it was going to be a Geordie bus driver in London. <laughs> and like, whereas now I'd be like, no, he's Northern Irish because it's one less thing to worry about fucking up. Yeah. Because I've now realised acting's much harder than I thought it was 10 years ago as well. Um, what about in terms of being a Harry Potter kid? I mean, I guess from the outside... Well, actually, just to yeah. track a bit on that subject, that, um, that part, which is obviously by far the thing I'm most known for and almost, almost certainly will remain so, um, I, was, I had, I had a, an English accent so, pre- prepared to go into the room, um, but then in the room, Chris Columbus was just like, I think you just do your own voice. So that character's only Scottish because I'm Scottish. That's not... Which is clever from his perspective, Irish, especially yeah. for a child actor. But say being a, a, a Harry Potter kid now, for people listening, I guess, that's a dream, right? I mean, people get very excited about stuff like that, especially having had that start in the industry, that that, in a way, aside from people always talk about the stamp of approval that you get from having a, a drama school, a recognised drama school in your CV, that's a big stamp of approval. That's a big franchise movie. You came back again, did a second one. like. But have you ever, has there ever been a sense of, that's made you into a certain thing or, or that people judge you differently because you were a child, not a child actor in the sense of Shirley Temple or anything, but that, but that that in a way has prevented you from maybe being taken more seriously in other worlds or am I just creating something there that doesn't exist? Um, it doesn't exist to the, to the extent or in the way that you might think. Um, uh, and in fact, like, you'd be amazed at some of the people that get really excited about it. I recently uh, I just happened to bump into Simon Russell Beale, um, and 
uh, go and see him at the uh, doing the Lehman Brothers at the National Theatre, and he was extraordinary. And he had just watched all the Harry Potter movies, and then um, was incredibly excited that I'd been in Harry Potter. And he's fucking Simon Russell Beale, you know, it yeah, yeah. made me feel really strange. He was like introducing me to his friends in the national bar saying oh Sean was in Harry Potter <laughs> and telling me the story about his failed audition to play Dobby herself oh brilliant <laughs> um, uh, so yeah no you'd be amazed at, at, it's a conversation you'd be amazed at some of the incredibly worthy people who actually are, are really like it and are kind yeah. of quite excited about it um, it's slightly a double edged sword I mean first and foremost by and large just a great thing. Of course. Incredibly lucky, incredibly privileged, you know, to get something that kind of put you on the map and set you up financially and et cetera, et cetera, at such a young age um, is a, a lottery win for an actor. And I'm very aware of that. And I'm very grateful for that. And also just like, it, it's, it's the kind of biggest kind of Western cultural phenomenon since the Beatles. And it to this to this day, it's still kind of I can almost can't get my head around like the fact that I was it was able to be part of that, albeit a very small mm. part, you know. Um, and uh, I've been to I've you know, and that's there I've, forever as well. I guess yeah. that's a lovely thing. And I've been to you know now almost almost twenty years after starting on that, I've been to conventions all over the world and I've met people over, you know, like literally anywhere to go on the entire planet um, there are people for whom that was like the, you know the biggest part of their childhood yeah and that's um, that's really lovely and I think it's I think it's really important not to get if you are an artist and you've got one of those things you know you've got the big hit single or you know the little yeah. part of the big movie or something it, it's easy to if it if, if it doesn't lead on to you then continuing to have that level of success it's very very easy to kind of get better about or that or even if it does do. and pe then, yeah. then you have a reason to distance yourself from it because you've moved beyond yeah. you know yeah like um, Van Morrison won't play Brown Eyed Girl quite a lot of the time yes I remember, you know, that I remember kind of... Tom York having a they, they did play Creep but I had a whinge about it first yeah. seeing them at a gig in Aberdeen um, and although I understand that I think you know if, if you've had that experience, which most artists would just give their eye teeth to get anywhere near, it's really, really important to not not let the downsides of it come to dominate your thinking about You've got it. Got to acknowledge and be, it, yeah, and be remain grateful for that. Um, okay, so we're half an hour in, right? And I guess the overriding impression is of someone who is kind of you don't seem to get overly excited by the industry or overly terrified by it you seem to have kind of developed a way of i think you said it uh, being um in some way what was it you said uh, not distance or uh, you kind of talked about being slightly removed from it or healthily kind of you know not i suppose fretting about it on a day-to-day -day basis yeah um but one of the things that came over in the live event was certainly that you were fairly honest about having had moments when you felt like giving up. And I guess for actors who haven't had an opportunity, like say uh, Right Now or Harry Potter or any of those other things you've done, that, um, that that would be like, but if he's thought about giving up, fucking hell. But you have, I mean, Byron Emissions thought several times. Yes, about, I've spent you know, a considerable proportion of my time as an actor um, really seriously considering not doing it and come, and come incredibly close a couple of times. Um, 
What's the closest you've come? Uh, applying for uni and getting in and uh, almost going and then getting a film. So in a way it wasn't your decision. And then the film was terrible and in hindsight I almost regret not so going to uni instead. Applied to university, don't get in. Um, had you not got that job, do you think you would have went to university and something else might have come along? Like it sounds like if you're if the first job that comes along not the first job, but a good job comes along and you go, I'm going to give up in university. It sounds like had you started university and got a year in and somebody phoned and went at your agent phone and said, John, I know you said at university, but I've just had a phone call and Brian Singer <laughs> <laughs> wants you to play Freddie Mercury. I would have said, I've heard some stories. <laughs> but, you, but you know what I mean? Like there, there's there's something in there that says, and I think it's the same of all actors, that we all we, we all toy with the idea of giving up. But actually when it comes down to it, when we say we were close to it, Really, we were just hoping that the phone was going to ring and give us an excuse not to. Do you think that's a fairly accurate summary, or 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 have you been closer than than a fantasy? I don't think so, and I've got to be honest. Like part of the part of the reason why I haven't is that you know I'm I've got so far into life without. I mean, I left school at sixteen with nothing because I hated it. Um, acting's pretty tough, but I do work at times and at times get very well paid for it um so like what the hell else i would do that would come with any sort of reason to think i would make a decent living is is you know that sort of holding there been times when i've just really wanted out um and i think that's yeah people will be kind of a lot of young people are shocked to hear that and i, I think that's really important to make that point that it's the way that business works now it's not only if you don't get anywhere that you're going to have all these problems and it's going to suck and you're going to be... I I locked out young and I don't have to live in shared rented accommodation with five other actors and all that kind of thing. Um, but even if you're doing really well creatively, you're still probably going to, you're, you're going to have these constant indignities of um, the horrible ways that the casting processes operate. Uh, the money is going down. You know, the money is really polarizing. If your name's not on the tin, um, you're not making nearly as much of a living as you were twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, um, Tom Goodman Hill chatted about that. You know, a few people have chatted about that. The proportion of people who, for whom acting can bring any sort of contentment or stability in their life in a, in a sustainable way is so vanishingly tiny. Um, I've got to be honest with people about that. So if it's so, if this is, I mean, that's always a, a difficult, I always find that difficult because I guess. No, I'll give, sorry, I'll give a concrete it's example. It's all relative, right? It's, I'll give a concrete example. I um, worked a couple of times uh, with Sean Scanlon, a lovely Scottish actor, uh, sadly no longer with us. He was telling me, we had this, um, great week we were doing a radio play together and we were both hardly in it but just the way the schedule worked out we were needed to be in every day even though we were hardly in it and so we sort of spent, spent a week in the spent a week in the tea room essentially <laughs> um, just chatting away and he was talking about the experience of being an actor in I think like the 70s now Sean he worked regularly and he was he was well thought of but he wasn't a name on the 10 star ever no. at any point in his career as far as I understand um, so his he had what was the sort of standard sustainable way for a good actor, actor to make a living back then, which was he was in theatre most of the, you know, for a 
the majority of the year he'd had a theatre job on the go. Which were relatively better wages back then compared yes. to the national average, right? Yeah, and uh, would do maybe one or two um, TV spots, you know, guest one-off episodes. Whatever. Bit of money, bit now, of royalties. At that time, not only was that a living, mm -hmm. that was a great living. Like, you could make just, just doing most of your work, working in the theatre for most of the year, you were making a living. Sean was telling me he would, as not a name, he would take the fee from the guest lead, one episode guest lead in a British TV show, and that would be the down, his down payment on a flat in London. See? Right? You're talking about an amount of work oh, that if you, were, if you were to do that now, you know, a good actor who's spending eight months out of the year working in theatre, a couple of little TV spots, lucky if they're making 20 grand. Yep. And your deposit on a flat in London's 40 grand, so yeah. good luck with that. Uh, yeah, that's depressing, right? That is <coughs> fucking depressing. And I guess it, it feeds into a bigger question, which has come back perennially in this, which is, are we moving into a time whenever we can no longer think of acting, certainly for those who are coming into it, as being something that they can realistically aspire to being their only and full-time job? Yes. It, there is no... There is no model for a sustainable career for working actors. No. As far as I can see, that is the situation that we're in. In order to make any more than poverty wages as an actor, it's it's a crapshoot. You know, you, you've got to be a lottery winner. And so you have to have something else, right? You have to have something else. I mean, that's kind of, have, I think, the overriding sense of it. So, so is the only reason that you haven't given up got to do with the fact, as you say, that you lucked out early on? Yeah. Has that always been the thing of the thing that pulls you back from the brink? Is that. Yes, and in some ways I think it might be. Looking at the long game, it might be a, it might be a bad thing for me because I think if that hadn't happened, you know, the, the fact that I looked at it early on and I'm on a more, a more sort of stable financial footing than anyone who occupies a compatible place in the business. Has made it has made it possible for me to keep chasing, well past the point where anyone else would have had to give up in terms of some of the real long droughts that I've had in my career. And in hindsight, was that a good thing for me? Would it have been better to to get out earlier on and you know when still really young and and kind of do something else? Maybe. So I, I have very very mixed feelings about. What would you about that? <laughs> What are the best things then? Like, cause, cause it, it, you paint, it's not a, it's not a bleak picture. It's a very honest picture. But as part of that honest picture, uh, I also get the impression that if you didn't enjoy it, you wouldn't do it. If you didn't love elements of it, you wouldn't do it. This isn't the easiest way that you, as an intelligent human being, could make a living, whatever <laughs> no. that living is. No, it's not. This is not the easiest, easiest road. In some ways, it must be nice. The nice thing about being an unemployed actor is you can go for a walk in the park of an afternoon when most of your friends from school are still in the office. The downside is they're all pulling in a salary at the end of the month and you're right. not, right? But what are the bits that, 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 as well as the looking out early on, what are the other things that pull you back from the brink, the things that keep you chasing, as you say? Well, yeah, I mean, so we've been sort of focusing on the negative here for, for good reason, but yeah, I mean, it, I've been extraordinarily lucky in terms of some of the experiences that I've had. Um, 
much of that to do with looking at it so young and, and kind of getting it established in a way that, you know, the extent to which I've kind of seen the world and met and worked with a lot of the, the best actors in the world um, has been has been incredible. And I do, I guess I do have that kind of artist thing. I was almost shudder. Actually, well, no, I don't shudder to use the word. I used to shudder to use the word artist to describe myself, actually, until I did right now. We'll uh, and then I was that. like, you know what, I am a fucking artist. We'll talk about that. And just that thing of like, you know, it's maybe a, it's maybe some kind of mental illness. I don't know what it is, but I do have that thing of one moment of it really working and being part of creating something which really touches people that see it is worth a lot of shit and a lot of pain. And at the end of the day, I am willing to go through all that to get that moment. So, there's two things come out of that that I, I'd like to follow up and that I wanted to follow up anyway. Um, one of them is that idea of a psychological impact that you you certainly hinted at in the, the live event and I think you've kind of hinted at as well, which is that uh, that was a hard job, that the job that you list as being the job that you, you know, this is the thing that I, I, you know, the actor that I like to be, the kind of work that I like to do. It's fair to say that probably wasn't the best paid job we've ever done, first of all, so that's how we know you're not in a fair <laughs> yeah. money, right? Um, but you, what is the psychological impact of jobs like that? What is the, what is the, if it's not the worst side of acting, what are the other costs, aside from the financial we've talked about, aside from the depressingly uh, low chance of ever living in a house that you own yourself and you know, yeah. what are the, are the, the things that well, that, I mean, that, cost? That's, that's a, yeah, again, a, a huge area which, don't, which people don't really talk about very much. Now, that job, I don't know how much to say about this, but fuck it, I'll be honest, actor. That, that job is an extreme example. Um, the, it was a very, very deep and weird play about grief and loss that we, uh, that led by the brilliant Michael Boyd, we went into and did not leave a stone unturned, um, which is already, you know, if you're someone that's kind of willing to go there and give your emotional energies to it, that's already quite a demanding process to go through. Three years before we started rehearsing that, in a cold, miserable room in South London in the winter, um, Alan Rickman died, uh, who had been my mentor since I was 11 years old. Um, so I was right in the middle of experiencing the most profound grief of my life when we started and had to, and had to go through that process. And I'm spending all day make, you know, deliberately thinking about pain and loss and what the character's going through and how it relates to what I've been through myself, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of the day, even when I come back to my own reality, my own reality is grieving alone in a rented, you know, Airbnb room in Tooting. Uh, Big up the Tooting, by yeah. the way. Big up oh, the Tooting. Oh, I love Tooting. That's not the... I didn't, actually, I didn't know Tooting <laughs> at the time, which is a problem. Now I like Tooting. I enjoy going back there, but at the time it was just bleak. Um, <laughs> then... I mean, it's the, I keep meaning to write this up, but I think it's just like so scary. Uh, then inevitably got ill um, as a result of that. Um, we went down to Bath 
uh, to we started doing the show down there and I, um, I felt a little bit better. It was nice weather. I went out feeling kind of vaguely okay for the first time in my life on, uh, I think it was the Tuesday morning, to go down and start the technical rehearsal of the show. Um, and my landlord, uh, who was a very lovely man who I um, checked in with two nights previously, uh, had just dropped dead and I saw his body on the way to the theatre. Um, when we got to London, the first thing I did on the one day off that we had before we started again was I went to the gym. I went into and had a good workout, first good workout in about a month. I went into the pool area uh, and there was a woman lying inert being dealt with by a couple of paramedics um, and was unresponsive. All right. uh, at one point, uh, the leading lady of the show choked on her dinner next to me in a restaurant. I had to give her the Heimlich maneuver. Uh, friend of mine came to see the show and I was supposed to meet him afterwards and he just he ghosted he wasn't there and it's because he'd heard five minutes before coming in to see the show that his father had died and then he had to watch that show so I put him through that and then and every every night on stage Maureen Beatty's got this line to me which is death is following you around yeah I mean psychologists would have a field day with that yeah. as well because it is that yeah. thing about noticing obviously those are not things you wouldn't notice you wouldn't have walked over you know the the body of a landlord and not seen it had had you not been in that particular play but there is something incredible about you know um so i was watching a film the other day and somebody said you know whenever you're whenever you're looking for yellow cars they're easy to find it's all you see yeah. <laughs> like, and and there's something of that in i guess being in that process but that also from a psycholo psychological point of view is is a kind of trauma like that that mm. you're noticing the darkness uh, or that it's somehow being you're not transcribing it, but you're taking it and making note of it instead of just walking past is quite interesting, I think. And so in terms of the psychological cost of that. Um, well, to, to go on, I mean, obviously, a lot of this is obviously just yeah. shit that happened. It's got nothing to do with the business per se. But even just doing that play and the psychological demands of a play like that and it being... On the road, so you're I'm away from home, I'm away from everyone I know and love. Yeah, this is like months. this is like the worst, the, the worst mix in, ter in yeah. terms of your mental health. And you're we're getting paid, we're, we're paid absolute equity minimums for a small theatre. Okay. For, I, mean, I think it was four hundred and thirty-one pounds a week. Plus your hundred and fifteen pounds. Yeah, or plus um, which again, which again, the money that you get for going and getting your digs or whatever hasn't even nearly kept up with how much it actually cost to do of course um, it used to be there'd be a digs list and you would go, you know even in London it'd be like yeah 50 quid a week or whatever you go and sleep in someone's kind of spare room and the, I mean the very fact that like someone you know we were you know, all people long established you know decades into to fairly impressive careers and that's how it operates you're getting paid minimums and you're expected to go and just find someone's spare room to sleep in kind of thing um, and the fact that you get you, know, you get your minimums that covers your you know, maximum forty three hours a week, however you can work. But you know, yep. there was some realistically the show was taking up twenty four hours a day, twenty four seven of your time. Um, so even when you're doing something that's actually great, and this is this is why you're into this, this is why you're here, this is working. What is, what is being demanded of you for for what you're you know for the financial reward and and the 
and the respect that you get and and how little it can achieve in terms of leading to any sort of progression for you uh, is insane. There are people who will listen to this, I know because I've spoken to them and some of them have been interviewed on this on this podcast where um, their thing is always fucking deal with it, right? This isn't me speaking, but there is a kind of an element in the industry that is like totally, I think, closed off to the possibility that what we do has a psychological impact beyond if we worked as a bank teller or if we worked as, and I'm specifically choosing jobs that don't have a kind of, you would imagine, a, a an impact upon mental health by the nature of what you do. People obviously can have mental health issues in any job, but by the nature of what you do, it's not going to make it worse, you wouldn't imagine, right? Um, being away from home on the road, not good, right? For a lot of people, cope very badly with it. Doing a play about grief, difficult. The, the, I don't even need to ask the question because I can say, well, I'm going to say it and you're going to say you're wrong. There was nobody there to pick up the pieces on payroll for you on tour. Um, there were people there who could to some degree, but there was, there was certainly no one there that that was part of the remit. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like if you worked for in something to do with grief counselling, for example, you would have uh, somebody you could go to and decompress and debrief and talk talk about all that difficult shit. That that doesn't apply in our industry quite a lot. Certainly not for actors. Occupational health of any kind, right? So you're alone on tour. I, dealing, I mean, I believe I believe in kind of in some major commercial projects and in some like recurring dramas and things like yeah. that. I think you'll have someone on staff, but yeah, as a general rule, no. On a on a yeah. equity minimum theatre show on whatever it is, four hundred some and hundred and something pounds that's not yeah and so we have to deal with that ourselves do you think that that process had any long term like let's move on to you finished it it has been in spite of all of that the thing that you come back to to say I fucking love doing that not necessarily enjoyed every minute of the process and being on tour or you know all of those things that you've just listed but that as a whole that is why I do this that project yeah and that in itself is quite a stark realization that i look back at the one i look back at the the one thing where i can think i am completely happy with that piece of art um i think we all did amazing work and i think i did my best work i think it asked a lot of me and i was up to the job and i continued to do my i continued to get on stage you know show must go on i uh i I mean, when I was when I was at one point, it was a bush. I was so ill that I was literally sleeping until about six p.m., having a shower, walking along the street to the theater, doing the show, like hit myself up with Danars and and Red Bull to just kind of Wake come up. to consciousness enough um, to get on the stage. Um, sometimes finding myself in the middle of a scene with no idea how I got there. Uh, I don't mind that. I quite like that feeling it. sometimes. Well, if you, if it's happening because you're like you're so in, you've sunned it so many times, and you're so kind of, and you find yourself slipping into autopilot. But not if you're so ill that you're like <laughs> almost losing consciousness. That's not that's not a good reason. That guy, to, Sean uh, Bickerstaff, was amazing. Yeah. I, I I swear he was swaying the whole time, yeah. coming down like having some chicken soup and going back to bed for twenty hours. Um, yeah, so. And you know, but I still managed to get on the stage and do it every night. Um, but to look back at the thing that 
in terms of the quality of the end result, you are by far the most proud of and realize that you made no money. It almost killed you and it has done nothing for your career. Yeah, but on the plus side, Sean, <laughs> you loved it. No, I didn't love it. Yeah. I'm proud of it. Different thing. Good point. Um, in terms of then how that affects things beyond that show, like, have you been aware of things that you've done as an actor for whatever reason affecting personal relationships, be it with other actors or with, dare I use the term in front of someone from the Harry Potter franchise, a muggle in your life? <laughs> uh, but has it ever... Has it ever uh, had an impact on your day-to-day life beyond just your struggling to get on stage or making you ill or uh, those kind of short-term stuff? It's like, I'm reasonably athletic. I used to be a cyclist when I was younger and I'd do a martial arts training and stuff like that. And trying to have any kind of consistency in anything like that when... You've got a job where sometimes you're not doing anything, and sometimes it's all encompassing, and you're and you're 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 traveling yeah. all the time. Um, yeah, it, it interferes with just about it interferes with all your other interests. It interferes with your relationships. I've, I've gone through fa- I've gone through phases where I've just been on the move to the point where the very idea of actually meeting someone and starting a relationship is just totally off the table. One of the things that stands out from the Equity Live event again is your instantaneous guffaw. Ahead of you, you laughed and ahead of everybody else when Emily was talking about speaking to her doctor about not getting sleep, and his advice was to ha- uh, get into a routine. <laughs> and before she'd even finished the line, and before the audience had heard it, you were laughing <laughs> in a kind of sense of recognition. Um, you yeah, know, I would. I mean, I would, I would never even ask my doctor about it because I know the answer. But yeah, no, and that's um, that's. I think that's an inevitable part of it that. that is not reflected in what we get paid. You know, there's no remuneration for the fact that um, like I have a really, I have a really poor immune system, and this is why. I do all the I've I've looked at all the kind of medical you know factors in in kind of immune health. Every other thing that that encourages a good immune system, like exercise, good diet, moderating your alcohol intake, etc., 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 right down the line, I I tick all of those boxes except have a decent routine and keep your stress levels low. You, you cannot be an actor and have a healthy routine and low stress levels. That is something that, that is a price that you inevitably pay to do this job. It's something it will cost you inevitably and it is not recognized or, or um, rewarded in any way. See, I agree, but I remember, actually I agree, but, and then I agree again. I used to 100% agree with this, and because every actor I met older than me. So when I first get into the industry, I think I've said this before, um, I remember doing specifically uh, a film when I was about 33, and for the first time met an actor who wasn't mental. So I thought, (laughs) and I went back to my wife, and I'd had a chat to her that year saying, because I had I'd got close to a couple of actors older than me who I'd worked with, who then turned out to be fucking nut jobs, right? And I mean nut jobs in that just controlling, abusive to people they were closest to, uh, had you know addiction issues, which is an illness, but like made everything else worse. 
um, with just very difficult to spend time with. And relationships, as a result, had crumbled. And I said to my wife, listen, I don't, I don't know anybody, any man above me in the industry, 10 years or more older than me, who I haven't, when I've got to know better, hasn't turned out to be slightly, let's say, on an uneven keel. And I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the cost of the industry that I want to actually go in hook, line and sinker because that's a big price. And then I, within months of having that conversation, worked in this job, met an actor who was like 15 years older than me, successful, big franchise actor, really normal. I was like, Brona, I think that, I think this guy is the model that disproves that this guy, you know, disproves the theory. He, he is, you can be normal. Of course, then two weeks later, it turns out to be an absolute nut. <laughs> and so I spend the next three or four years and then find another actor who's like, you know, happily married. And you're like, fucking, this guy has the life. It's like, he's totally sorted. And then it turns out he doesn't have it sorted. And I wonder, is that my expectation of, hum of human beings? Is that somehow there is this ideal in which you're totally on an even keel? But it's what we're learning increasingly is nobody's got their fucking shit together. And actually, as actors, maybe we think we are exceptional cases and that, you know, we are slightly more prone to the things you've described and the, the price you pay, you know, high stress levels. Like Denise Goff's example again, which is like, we're not deep sea, or was it Denise Goff? We're not deep sea divers, deep sea fishermen. We're not NHS frontline nurses. We're not like... So, so are there are other people with those factors, right? Yeah, but there are a lot of jobs which a lot of jobs which do have very obvious, um, identifiable um, aspects to them, which will inevitably create problems for people's health, mental and otherwise. It, that aspect of it is recognised and to some acknowledged yeah. and to some extent um, recognised in their financial compensation. I mean, I'm certainly I'm, I'm not I'm not going to sit here and begin to claim that acting is in any way unique in being a, a stressful or difficult no, of course. job. But it is stressful and difficult in unique ways. Yeah, of course. And in ways that because it's self, it's not self-employed, because it's uh, sporadic short-term contracts that, and I made this point actually recently in one of the chats, is that we're nobody's responsibility. So like when you're working on a job, say for a big studio, if you do have a problem, say you put your back out, they'll and someone to fix it so when you're working you are extremely mm. well looked after like you can get someone you can get a chiropractor at a moment's notice you can get an appointment with a doctor when you're on tour if you speak to the company manager they'll make sure you see a doctor because it's in their interest to keep you healthy right when you're not working and you're dealing with whatever let's call it trauma whatever trauma that has occurred be it physical or psychological as a result of a job or as a result of job unemployment job unemployment no money money no money money no money no money no money and you know, in ad nauseum, right? That you're nobody's responsibility. Mm -hmm. That actually, that's the difficulty is, and I guess it's a self-employment thing generally. Although, as we just said, this is an industry which has unrecognized psychological costs. I think because of not just the nature of doing a play about grief, but because of yeah, that's an extreme example. But because it's, of it's other things everywhere. Yeah. But it's not even necessarily the content of what we do, of the art of what we do. It's the other thing. It's the it's the no control, no respect from the people in the industry who use us. 
And no I, progression as well. You've got, you've got kind of no um, career. We've got, we've got, yeah, no pre career progression. You, we're, we're sort of we're the only people that, that ex expected to kind of deal with communism. I mean, the amount of actors, you know, if you if you do a play and you're really good in it, and you and people want to, you to do the next play, and then you're really good in that, and people want you to do the next play, and that process continues for thirty years, but you haven't looked out and got any like big commercial gigs. You're just working steadily in theatre, being really, really good. And I know quite a few actors that mm. fit into this category. Your reward is, oh, well, you can come and do the next play and get equity minimums for that as well. Yep. You know, you're, people who are renowned all over the world within the theatre community for being really, really good. And so people will go to them and beg them to come and do these fantastic, you know, parts. And they'll be working for company rate. But equally, the same thing applies regionally. Like if you go to <coughs> Scotland, people who are well known in Glasgow, and not necessarily globally, but the really well respected mm. Glasgow theatre actors who are in demand in Glasgow in theatre, they do that because they love it. No one's holding a gun to their head, but they're never going to get the reward that they may have got. I've worked with Jimmy Chisholm, a, 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 you know, legend in his own uh, in his own mad. I don't want to say lunchtime legend in his own mad time. Um, Scottish actor. Uh, works constantly in theatre because he's just fucking brilliant. Um, and I worked, I worked with him when he'd been being brilliant on stage most nights for 40 years. And he was in the same company wage that I was on. So, so there's, no, there's no progression. So this is, this can't be without, we, I've tried to bring it round to, because both of us, I think, are inclined to go down you know, if we're offered, you know, a, a dark precipice to go down, we'll dive in, we'll anyway. <laughs> uh, but I've tried to bring it to the moments of, of light because there has to be, because we're sitting here talking about it, still doing it. We're not both involved in the same university degree, having met each other going, I used to be an actor too, let's chat about it. We're both still chasing it, as you said, mm. right? So there must be something, and we've kind of tried to, to sense what that is. And I think for you, it must be that, that idea of art. Of that, this is bigger than making money. This is bigger than than uh, living a stress-free life or or getting to bed at regular hours, right? This is something being healthy, right? This is something that must matter to you, right? So the question I often ask, and I've never really had a satisfactory response to it. I got a satisfactory response to it once at a dinner party. Had a really good answer. Brilliant discussion, and since, because I was drinking lots of red wine, have forgotten what that answer was. <laughs> and so I've been seeking it ever since through this podcast, and I've never found it. And I feel like All right. anybody has it, you have it. The question, quite simply, is do you consider yourself an artist? Uh, oh, yeah, well, like, yeah, I covered that earlier on. Like, I, Why? Um, or why do you think it's important, as you said, to not shy away from that? Because at one point you said... I did shy away from it. I shied away from it for a long, long time. Um, and I think it was... I think, I think it, was, it was doing right now, doing that play and doing something which just asked you to give so much emotionally um, to making a, a, a piece that successful, that if it was successful, would have a, a really profound impact on the people that watched it. Which that play did. Um, I mean, not always good. Some people were horrified by it, but I was actually it, it divided people less than I thought. The vast majority of people really, really loved it. And just to have had the experience of a piece asking that much of you, asking that much of me. I'm going to talk second person. That I'm 
speaking about a real thing here, asking that much of me and me giving all that without hesitation despite what it was costing me um, and it working and it having the right effect and it being a profound experience for the people that came in to watch it. The opportunity to do that came up and I did it and it worked and that's why I don't feel um, pretentious about saying I'm an artist so anymore. You, so because of that role in creating a piece of art, so then I guess the the other question that I would like to ask is is that a political statement, do you feel? Is is saying you're an artist as opposed to a lot of actors will will without necessarily using the term will tend towards more a trades kind of because we're an interpretive artist by definition for a lot of people, that the idea is that we are we are plumbers, we fix things, somebody gives us something to do, we do it, we serve something, but that we have no creative role within that. That's what a lot of actors seem. I think in the majority of the ones I've spoken to seem to seem to be siding on the kind of no, we're not we we're not artists, we're just tradespeople, we just have a craft, craft craftspeople. Well I think the people that say that they're that they're craftsmen and not artists should probably be taken at their word. Um I think it, you know it's I don't think there's one one answer if it is an act, actor or an artist or a or a craftsman. See, in the past, I felt like it's a political craftsman. thing because because of where I'm from. Some people will tell you they're doing it for money. Some people, you know, they have a certain level of skill, and it's like, oh, you say the lines you want me to say, you know, whether it, I'll say the lines you want me to say, whether it's because uh, there's a paying audience in a theatre or whether it's because you want me to sell toothpaste for you, um, and so if that's your approach to it, then. Yeah, you probably reach into call yourself an artist. If your approach to it is to, um, which my approach is, if your approach, I, I like to, this. if your approach to it is to turn down things that will pay you a great deal of money, just because you can't get behind them, and you don't feel that it's honourable work, and take the thing that is going to pay you bugger all and actually be a lot of hard work and, and heartache because you think you might get a worthwhile piece of art at the end of it. That's your approach, and that's my approach. Then it's probably not so much of a reach to call yourself an artist. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variety within the actor as a, it, as a job description. Well, interestingly, as we're sitting in equity, title, huh? uh, Paul Higgins, the wonderful Paul Higgins, Scottish actor, who I think is certainly one of the greatest actors I've ever worked yeah, with. Yeah, he's great. Um, said, at said dinner party, um, that you can do anything artfully, that you can mow the lawn artfully, that it is your approach to what it is you're doing that defines who you are in relation to it, right? Um, and his wife, I think, was slightly less... On that side and Paul made the point that politically it's important for him to claim that he's an artist because of where he's from and because he's from a background of tradespeople right. that actually he feels it really important to claim to stake a claim not claim you know in some kind of uh, uh, tenuous way but to stake his claim to art because art traditionally has not been for people like him and so his approach to it is to do it artfully and to be an artist. And I think I've seen both actors from 
background of from a trade background and also from a kind of middle class bourgeois background both claim trades and i've seen both claim art and i guess you're right it is down to the individual approach and the individual relationship to whatever it is they're doing i would like to claim to be an act an artist on the basis of everything you've just said and on the basis of what paul said in that you can make a podcast artfully you can you know you can what it's, I suppose it's another way of saying mindfully, right? It was, mm-hmm. This is horrible, but but there is something about, there's a truth in that, I feel, that, that chimes with what you said. Um, Yeah, and well, I think you absolutely can do it. And, you know, actors aren't the only kind of field where people have that kind of debate. And you can be an artful plumber. Chefs do. Actually, that's that's yeah. another one Another one where there's a real debate within it, whether are, are we are we craftspeople or are we, are we artists? Um. And again, I would say there's not one answer. You know, you can have a... Fucking, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> I've decided. I've, uh, on that basis. Oh, the, no, the, the, but not the, as the an side, actor, the side, as a chef. Deciding you're... All oh, right. Yeah, I mean, deciding you're an artist actually comes kind of with its own, its own set of problems because, of course, an attitude which feeds into some of what we've been talking about is a real, and is a real problem for actors, artists, is this notion of... Well, why should you be? Why should you have good pain conditions for this? You're doing it because you love doing it. You know, no Fuck one else. No, you know, no one else gets told you enjoy your job. Therefore, you yeah. shouldn't get. I know none of my none of my teachers at school loved their jobs. Yeah. I know a lot of them didn't. It didn't dictate which ones got paid. They all got paid the fucking same, whether they liked being a teacher or not. Like some people in the health service like working in the health service. Some yeah. people in the private sector like work. A lot of them don't. Just because you don't like your job doesn't automatically mean you should get paid more. And equally, because you like it doesn't mean it's fucking. Absolutely, it's not. Anyway, before we wrap up, um, I'm going to say that uh, I'm going to say thank you to Equity in the context of the recording rather than in the kind of outro. Because uh, this is probably like the 10th uh, interview I've done in this building. And because you're on the old uh, uh, New Media Film and New Media Screen and New, new media, media Committee. committee. Uh, and because I feel it's important to go join the fucking union. Absolutely. Uh, be part of making the industry as good as it can be for all of us and for helping to change the things that may not affect you directly, but that certainly affect other people around you. And the kind of things we've been talking about, pay, occupational health, all of those things, the only way we can and, and have any chance of affecting change at, at any level on those issues is through united concerted effort via the union absolutely so and even if you're skint because you don't work very much if you work at all and any of it's ever on equity contracts you are a beneficiary of all the people who are here that's always my argument and paying your your paying your subs um so if you can possibly afford it it i think it's your duty to do it. What have the else. union ever done for us? Apart from the contracts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> apart, from all the apart from the fact that you're being paid anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. That no, you're I'm... even getting your travel covered. So yeah, let's let's uh, let's make that part of it because I don't think I've said that enough. I always say it in rehearsal rooms and in uh, trailers and stuff, people who go, Yeah, it's, I don't I don't well I'm paying for you then. If you're listening to this and you're not in the union, Sean and I are paying for you <laughs> to lazily collect better pay on better conditions than you otherwise would. So pay your way, you lazy, 
Unless <laughs> 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 this is the best recruitment drive. <laughs> Not that I disagree, but... Uh, also, some, you know, there's coffee mornings and... Yeah, yeah there's, I mean, there's, and there's a magazine which features this month, the live podcast with Sean and Emily. Uh, before oh, we, does it? Yeah, yeah there's right. a photograph of, <laughs> of the uh, four of us, Lorna and the three of us on stage, and a little write-up, lovely. Um, so you said... We're going to wrap it up, but you said earlier and you said in, on the stage that other younger actors often ask you for advice and you have no idea what to say. But if you could go back to eight-year-old or ten-and-a-half-year-old or 16, 17-year-old Sean, uh, either at the youth theatre working on Harry Potter or getting your agent in London, at, a, at some earlier point in this career, if you could tap that uh, younger Sean on the shoulder in a non-sinister way, and whisper in his ear and offer advice that might make the intervening years any easier at all in any way that you can think oh, of. What kind of things would you say to that younger actor to help him get to where you are today, perhaps with a little less stress, perhaps with a bit more regularity in terms of, uh, of uh, sleeping and all the rest of it? Like, what would you say? God, I mean, I, really, I, don't, I don't think there are any kind of big headline things are they you know a sort of a whole a whole list of particular decisions that yes yeah, specific been made decisions a different way right? and, and you know i don't think there's in terms of any kind of like you know massive approach to it um i mean i think i would if i could go back and show 10 year old sean how it was going to unfold i think it would just be just that just sh- Show him what was going to happen, but you know, show him all the, show him all the good and show him all the bad as well, and let him make a decision about whether he wanted to pursue it in that light of a of a of a realistic sense of what it is. But th- is this and not that, just another one of those? It's only as you get older that you realise your parents were right about so many things. It's only as with the fullness of time that you experience them for yourself that you can ever know that, and that maybe that ten year old would go. Yeah, but it's still class. Like it's still fucking great. Yeah, but I think acting is it's not unique, but it's 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 worse than a lot of <laughs> fields in terms of how little conception someone that wants to go into it has of what it actually is. Yes, I guess. Yeah. And so that's kind of what you know. My I can, here I've been very negative a lot of the time when I was talking to young people. It sounded very negative a lot of the time. My point is not. This is the worst thing in the world. No one should ever do it. My point is, be realistic. If if you listen to the experiences of people who have done it, um, and still want to do it, you want it so much that you're still gonna you still want to try, even knowing um, all the downsides. That's the test. Then do it. Yeah. But don't think it's not going to be you. That it is something it is. Don't think your chances are something that they're not. Don't think that it's as this kind of lovely, glamorous, bohemian existence. You know, a, a normal working day for you will be getting off stage at 10 o'clock at night. You can't go to bed. The healthy thing would be to go to bed, but you can't because you're too buzzed because you've, you know, you've just had the high point of your day. So? Um, so you have a choice between being lonely and wakeful in some shit accommodation or you know you only know six people 
in town and they're in the bar. So you basically take your chances between a lonely, tedious existence or, you know, being a functioning alcoholic. That's a normal day at work yep. for an actor, right? Yep. Think about that. If you're happy to take your chances with that. And that's when you're working. Have at Those it. And that's when you're working. Days. That's the good days. That's the days when you're fucking working. If, uh, if you hear, if you really, really accept and understand all that and your drive to be an artist um, is so strong that you still want to go for it, then God bless you. Have at it. But be realistic. Straight out. I'm 40 this year. For the first time ever, I'm going up to do a job and I have a hobby that I'm, instead of going to the bar, for the first time ever, I find out there's a climbing wall near where I'm staying. Mm -hmm. My plan is to get some food and go to the climbing wall alone until like 10 o'clock when it closes and then come back to and go to bed. That's my plan. And can't say that it's going to happen <laughs> because I only know five people in town <laughs> and they're all going to be in the hotel bar. Yep. Right? But that's my plan. Listen, um, it's been lovely to talk to you and definitely, definitely worth following up. To throw it over to you before I ask the very last question. Were there any, when you were coming in here today, were there anything you were expecting to talk about that you haven't talked about or any questions you thought you'll probably ask me or did you give it no thought whatsoever before you came? Um, I, th I probably, you know, I've I've uh, I've taken great delight in burning a few bridges in recent years. That's been quite cathartic, and I I, I, I imagine I, I'm quite surprised. Brand Singer's you know a what? big fan of the yeah. show. <laughs> I'm quite surprised that uh, I've got through what an hour and a half uh, without actually burning any bridges. I mean, um, so that's you've got. I can give you thirty seconds of bridge burning <laughs> if you can squeeze. No, them no, all I don't in. think it's necessary. In fact, everyone I know that I told that I was coming on this, um, literally winced. I mean, they actually, they, they actually made that noise with their mouth. Because <laughs> they just, because they know you. But yeah, because they know me. What are you going to yeah. say? Oh. Yeah, I um, mean. Actually, it's, yeah, no, I think of him. Um, yeah, I I, I'm surprised I've got, I've got all the way through it without um, actually burning. calling out any particular individuals and burning bridges, but that's probably a good thing. Apart from um, Brian Singer. Brian Singer, well, you know. Um, <laughs> so, listen, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, the last question, as always, is are you in anything at the minute? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> listen, uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, giving you. even more time to this. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I feel both encouraged and deeply deeply depressed <laughs> uh which i guess is part of the point because that's what you said yeah. at the start is it has to be realistic and, and full and full picture well, of the name, right yeah this man thank you thank you so that's that episode 11 is done can you believe it there is just one episode of this final series of the podcast left to go i say that but there may be a little bonus of sorts coming your way in a fortnight alongside episode 12. Keep an ear out. Until then, thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.